Hello, and welcome back to the Pep Talk Podcast. This is a bit of a term break special episode where I was lucky enough to be able to sit down with Dale Brott, the chairman of the board and the CEO of National Review, a leading conservative political journal in the States. The conversation with Dale was great. He gave advice to PPE students looking to get into journalism and politics, as well as his perspective on the future of media, Brexit, the recent U.S. election, what it means to be a conservative in 2020. With this episode, as well as future episodes, I'd like to try and increase engagement with the show, so make sure to tweet your, your thoughts on the show at me, at, uh, at Mark Matava, or at the Club of Pep with your thoughts. And uh, that's it for me. Uh, again, thank you to Dale Brott for sitting down with me, and uh, enjoy the episode. If we could just start with National Review, obviously you're the, uh, the CEO of National Review, and if you could sort of explain to the, uh, the UK heavy audience that will be listening to this what exactly National Review is, and uh, it's sort of uh, the history, it's, its mission, just what it is as a uh, magazine. Sure. It's uh, National Review is a political opinion journal founded in 1955, started by William F. Buckley Jr., uh, fresh out of uh, Yale University. When it came out, it was uh, kind of broke new ground being explicitly conservative in a time when uh, America was more of a liberal or statist consensus. So it, it's still a magazine today and respected as a leader uh, of American political conservative thought and committed to uh, civil intellectual discourse. But it's not going to surprise you that the website's where the action is today. In, instead of tens of thousands reading the magazines, it's uh, tens of millions reading online. Yeah, then that's an interesting evolution that we could talk about as well. Uh, how have you sort of seen National Review change? I mean, under your leadership and since the leadership of Buckley Jr., from this magazine journal to the online space? And would you say that it's been able to effectively transition online? Yes, I'm, I'm newer to the game, but uh, National Review is actually uh, one of the first online, but didn't grab it in the way that many of the, 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 the popular sites did. Our, our, our uh, marketplace and place is really kind of an intellectual thought leading group. So the, the market is a bit smaller, but time has changed and uh, structurally people brought on uh, the changes necessary from a technical standpoint and an organization standpoint. And it wouldn't surprise you that today, most of the people involved are uh, publishing regularly on a daily basis online as opposed to the every two weeks in the magazine. I think, uh, I think Buckley would be pleased to know that his favorite child is still significantly impactful, even if it's in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. And we've uh, had a sort of conversation about a, about a month ago before, uh, before we decided to, to do this podcast. And that was definitely an interesting conversation then. And we talked a little bit about the, the digital media space and where do you see sort of, and then we can sort of get on to uh, your role with the National Review, how you yeah. became the CEO, because that is definitely an interesting story. And I think especially significant for um, any PPE student looking to get into uh, to journalism. But uh, where do you see 
National Review sort of fitting in the digital media online space or just the current media environment in the future? Do you think that the current model of National Review will will sort of have the longevity that uh, I would assume that you would you would hope that it would have? Yeah, and you and I did talk about this. These these are uh, interesting times for sure. Uh, it's been it's actually been pretty dismal, I think, for media on on several fronts, and that's not just in the uh, the political opinion space. You know, uh, the, the old line is is if it leads, it bleeds, and um, President Donald Trump has, in that sense, been very good for media. But uh, the the polarization and us versus them. Makes, makes for effective business and politics at times, but doesn't uh, necessarily promote thoughtful discussion. I think there's always a place for us, but our mission, of course, is, is to get the best ideas, present them well, and get them in front of as many eyes and ears as we can. Um, I think there's challenges there, but interestingly, and, and you and I touched on this when we last spoke, the, uh, the digital subscription model is really a, um, a burgeoning avenue that allows real media companies to be able to fund themselves in ways that clicks and ads uh, are always going to drive you down to the lowest common denominator. So in that sense, I'm kind of uh, optimistic about our, our opportunities. And we touched on this the last time you spoke uh, well, or the last time we spoke as well, but it'd be interesting to briefly talk about how National Review gets its funding and how that is significant from, you, you mentioned, the uh, instead of being driven by sort of the news of the day and getting there first, getting the headline out there, uh, if you could sort of uh, talk about and explain how National Review gets its funding and how significant you think that is, especially in comparison to um, legacy media today. Yeah, so one of the things that's uh, probably different about opinion journalism, at least in the United States, is if it's done with integrity, it will never fund itself and uh, never has and it likely never will. So there, there's a donor model associated with it. Um, probably when it's all said and done, about a third of our revenue has historically come from people who have given. This is on the right and the left, interestingly. I know sometimes uh, something like that can be looked at cynically, but but I actually see it as a real strength for the organization to have the thousands of readers support you above and beyond. And unlike an organization maybe that has a sugar daddy that um, owns and controls, these this, this these are like uh, constituents, if you will. So you get the value of their thoughts and input but uh, you're not beholden to any individual. Um, I, th I think it'll be part of our mix, but uh, it's only part. You got you have advertising, and then of course the uh, the emerging digital subscriptions to kind of round it off. Yeah, and it's definitely I, I I had no clue going into our first conversation how I just assumed National Review was funded by advertisements on on the website and subscriptions like any standard sort of uh media print organization would be but what what a sad statement that you said a, uh just a, a few seconds ago that you can't have uh a truth-telling media organization that relies 
on the standard profit model that the majority of media organizations adhere to today. That is, yeah, that's kind of sobering there, that thought, that that model just doesn't work for delivering impartial news. Well, of course, National Review has a, a, a political bent, a, a definite outlook on uh, policy and, and uh, the world. So in that sense, it's a special category when you get into political opinion journalism, which I suspect a lot of your fellow students are particularly interested in. And, and that's, that's where uh, being somewhat donor-funded is uh, part of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that National Review then is uh, for right-wing readers, or would you expect and hope that a wide range of people with a wide range of sort of political opinions would read National Review and read it critically and and analyze it from their perspective as well? Is it just right-wing news, or do you think it's something bigger than that? No, that's a great question. I, I do think we have a broader base than uh, political American political conservatives. I, I think if we're doing our job right, we're engaging in conversation with people who want to know what others think. That's the uh, that's 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 the healthy way to go go at these things. There's there's that um, there's a quote, and I actually wrote it down here because I thought we might talk about it here by uh, John Stuart Mill. Uh, he who knows it, only his own side of the case knows little of that. And and uh, I think uh, if if you're if your writing is a bunch about sneering and stuff, you're 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 not uh, you're not engaging people's minds and conversation. Having said that, we're definitely here to uh, equip people of a similar mindset, give them an understanding of why they should think that way, and allow them to go out and discuss in the marketplace of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, I think that I share this opinion with a majority of PPE students that we are all trying to get the full picture whenever we're looking into any sort of political news or really anything in our lives and the significance of that, especially uh, students for in PPE and in, in university in general might be more suspicious of a uh, a right-wing media source and especially in comparison to the UK uh, it's interesting to talk about national review because their their model of newspapers is incredibly segmented so there are certain mm. groups of people that read certain newspapers and that's where they get their news and I think that this is also something we talked about in our last conversation that that is certainly increased the temperature in both of the, both countries there and uh, increased polarization. And I mean, certainly glad to hear that that uh, that National Review and you want that larger outlook of not just a right wing bent or a left wing bent, but sort of critical thinking. And that J.S. Mill quote is great, especially for students who right now are in first year studying um introduction, intro to political philosophy. They're reading a lot of J.S. Mill. Yeah. So we can, uh, we can move on if you, would, uh, if you would like to talk a little bit about your journey to becoming the CEO of National Review, something we also talked about the last time we spoke, but a, a very interesting 
interesting journey, if you'd like to just touch on that. Well, Mark, like you, I was a uh, political science and economics major in school, um, but uh, life has its way of dealing. I, I married in college, had a child, and uh, found myself uh, from a professional standpoint needing to make money right away. My plan, by the way, was to go into law school. Uh, definitely have always had interest in uh, public policy and, and that arena, but I but I had a knack for technology and uh, got myself involved in a software company and spent uh, a little over 30 years uh, owning a business-to-business uh, -business software company here in the United States. When I uh, retired, sold and retired from the company, we had over 300 employees and I, I really enjoyed the process of making products and providing value to customers and making a good place to work and working with nice and quality people. But uh, when it came time for, like you, you said, like a second career, uh, I, I had a few ideas and one of them was National Review, which I had subscribed to since I was uh, 20 and uh, got involved and connected with them. And at, at some point found that there was just this opportunity to serve in, in this role as chairman of the board and, and, and CEO. Uh, the fun of it is, unlike probably many of your uh, friends and, and uh, fellow students, I don't think I had the, uh, the chops as a writer or philosopher to really add value at NR in hindsight. I might have gone there and tried in my uh, 20s to do well at it, but, but, but in timing, I was able to bring skills that I had gained in uh, the, uh, I don't know, just the world of business process management, people, building a team, being focused on goals and such. So, so those are the skills that I bring to the table, not the uh, incredible dissection of the, um, the latest news on Brexit and, and the such. Not, not breaking stories, but helping facilitate them. Right. Uh, so somebody's got to make sure that the trains run uh, on time and efficiently and uh, make sense financially. So absolutely. So I, so I help so in that. What would you say make makes an effective sort of managing editor or chairman of the board, CEO of a newspaper, magazine, journal like National Review? Uh, a publication uh, that is similar, just as a sort of statement of advice for students that are listening to this and thinking that they might want to end up in a position similar to yours later in life? Well, you know, it's, a, it's always an interesting thing in any kind of uh, career that there's a mix of skills. You have your specialization. I'm a great musician. I'm a great writer. I'm a great uh, engineer, et cetera. But the ability to really leverage yourself in those opportunities means you need to be broader than that core skill. There's understanding how uh, people work together, teams, putting together good teams, um, in the ability to encourage everybody to a... Uh, to a, a high point as far as uh, what you put out and, and such. So, so I found that it takes a special mix of somebody who aspires to that. And, you know, the ability 
to write and write well is not the same thing as the ability to help others write and write well. And it'll be interesting to watch as you and some of your classmates go through uh, to find who has that, that extra layer or different layer uh, uh, yeah, available to or, them. Or who could develop that. And, right. Uh, yeah. Well, and it all starts with, you know, it's hard work and caring. Uh, if, if I care about the results and know that that makes a difference on how I uh, organize and the processes and, and how we go about it, uh, and I commit myself to understanding the skills associated with that, then I can leverage and have that better outcome. Yeah, very interesting. That, I think that that would be very insightful for um, PPE students listening to this. And uh, if we could move on to something that uh, I actually wanted to talk to you again outside of yeah. a podcast recording about and something that we talked a lot about in our first conversation, yeah, uh, the U.S. election and the last time we spoke, that election hadn't come and gone, and and now it has. And uh, if I could just ask, sort of, in general, your thoughts about the the U.S. election, and then how that fits into National Review as a paper, and and just keep keep it general, just to start. Yeah. Well, I think you can't help but stand back and be impressed by how close this election was and how close the election was four years ago. And of course, one side wins and another side loses. Apparently, that's not easy to sort out in some people's brains. But when that happens, there's this urge to think, oh, the people are behind me or this is, this is a mandate of some sort. But I, I think we just have to be struck by um, the close division that we have in our country about two broad sets of ideas that are obviously imperfectly played. And we just saw it again at this election. Uh, but for tens of thousands of votes in the United States spread in the right places, uh, the election would have gone differently this year and then four years ago with Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I think that was 80,000 votes across three states for the Electoral College victory for Trump. Yeah, it's amazing, Absolutely isn't it? Absolutely incredible how close it was. And then one concerning thing that we... Uh, that we noted that I, I hope you could expand on a little bit is the the polarity within the electorate and how a victory for one side, maybe four years ago, Trump, this time, Joe Biden, it didn't seem like either side would reach out to the other after, after a concession or after an elector, electoral loss. And there have been a lot of uh, promises from Joe Biden that he wants to be uh, president for for all Americans. Uh, how far do you see that coming to fruition uh, in cabinet selections in the sort of media narrative we have right now? Do you see a, a coming together or at least an attempt at reaching consensus from the Biden administration? Well, certainly by character, Joe Biden's a very different man than uh, President Trump in this regard, and he has a, uh, a heritage experience of, of having to work with others to get things done. So in that sense, at least in tone and um, conversation, I, I do think we, we have something to look forward to positively there. That said, 
if if we think the American political right is uh, fractured and split and confused, the American political left is probably all the more so. And in order for him to get elected and bring together a coalition, uh, I I think I think his biggest challenges are not going to be the uh, Republican U.S. Senate, but his his own internal group. So. We'll see where that that leads. Um, if you, know, you could the fight, ex- expand yeah. on that that thought a little bit about the uh, the internal conflict in the Democratic Party, because that's something that, as an American interested in American politics, I try and pay attention to. And obviously, you have deep knowledge of that. But a lot of uh, people in the UK uh, don't, and I mean, shouldn't be expected to know the sort of political infighting and the the ins and outs of each of the major parties. But if you could sort of expand on the breaks within the Democratic Party and how that could be significant and a roadblock to Joe Biden just as much as, as the right could end up being. The, uh, um, this, this time around in the U.S. primaries, just like four years ago, the uh, big comer was uh, Bernie Sanders, a uh, senator from the state of Vermont, small state in the United States, who is, uh, a, I believe the title, a democratic socialist. So in, in American government, you do not tend to have a bunch of small parties uh, represented. People are a Republican or a Democrat, and then it, it really drops off from there. So he stands out out of the thousand, or excuse me, the hundred senators of being one of, I, th- I think, the only independent party, if you will. But he's always organized with the Democrats. But Bernie Sanders and many who support him have a, a, a much more radical, and I say radical for the United States, mindset as far as uh, public policy than the Hillary Clinton, uh, Joe Biden, more... Um, more centrist and more traditional um, leg or group. And and I just think you're going to see when it comes to actual appointments and policies that that group, which bit their tongue and said anybody but Trump, are now going to say it's time to answer our priorities and be that for nationalized health care, um, aggressive tax policies against the, the rich and um, uh, maybe defunding the police, some of the wild things you sometimes hear out of uh, the American political left, will come to a fore. Yes. Uh, so would you would you say then that Biden will be, in order to govern, he'll have to be dragged to the left? Uh, to to get the consensus of his own party? You know, I think, Mark, I think that's above my pay grade, but I'll, I'll, I'll speculate that we're going to see him um, pulled to the right in order to govern. Uh, I don't think it, from an individual policy standpoint, you're likely to see National Review agree with much of what he says in that regard. But it, it'll cause him problems on on both his flanks, if you will. Yeah. So it seems like he is uh, s- situated in the middle of a very big divide, 
and <laughs> either way he turns, it's it's uh, going to be troubled waters. And that, that brings up the importance of the runoff election in Georgia for those two Senate seats. If you... Uh, could I could I hear just a little bit more speculation? Let's say that both Democrats get elected. There's a 51-seat majority for the Democrats, and Mitch McConnell is no longer the Senate majority leader. How does that change the calculation for, for Joe Biden and his governing strategy? Well, that is big. So right now the uh, Republicans have 50 seats, the Democrats have 48, but if the Democrats were to pick up these two remaining, it would become 50-50. And under the United States Constitution, the vice president, so uh, Kamala Harris, would then be allowed to break any tie votes. So from an organizational standpoint, that would swing it to a Democratic uh, majority. Probably the most interesting thing that you hear of in uh, American politics in the Senate is this concept of unlimited debate in the filibuster, as they call it, which as a practical matter means that if it's something of real importance, it requires a supermajority in order to get that bill passed through Congress. Well, there are pluses and minuses to the filibuster, especially pluses and minuses to how it's used today, maybe compared to 50 years ago. But it does become a... uh, stumbling block for those in power who want to push through a simple majoritarian act. And the Democrats have made noises about getting rid of the American filibuster in the Senate. Uh, To do that would really just require 51 to say, let's do it. But here's the fun, Mark. Um, It's pretty clear that there are a number of Democrats that uh, have a longer term view and recognize that the uh, what goes around comes around and that, that this is actually to some degree a protection for them against, uh, uh, you know, narrow majoritarian rule. So I'm pretty sure that you will not see that overthrown. Uh, there's already been some Democratic senators that have said they wouldn't do that. And I think it's a pretty, I mean, it, it does change the dynamic, but it's a pretty narrow game to constantly uh, have to make sure that you can count on every nose for every vote um, and then Within call the in the vice president. Majority. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, and that gets even worse for Biden if one of those Republicans does win uh, Leffler or Purdue and, and makes it a Republican majority. Do you see Mitch McConnell as majority leader? Uh, being as obstructionist as he was uh, under the Obama administration. We saw the blocking of Merrick Garland that uh, has a lot of Democrats calling every Supreme Court seat uh, since uh, a stolen seat. Uh, Do you see an obstructionist uh, Senate or or a Senate looking to to work with Joe Biden on some middle-of-the-road deals, especially surrounding COVID? Well, I suspect you'll see cooperation on COVID, uh, but really um, the dynamics here are different than they they would have been before. Uh, Mitch McConnell himself won't have nearly as strong of a of a uh, a uh, group together there, his count. So, so I think he's going to have to be more cooperative, but. 
he's a wily guy and uh, you're probably going to see, like you say, obstructionism. It, it's going to be something that Joe Biden is going to have to work out carefully. And I suspect the man's smart enough to know that. Speaking of the uh, the the wits of, of Joe Biden, there has been a lot of speculation sort of on the right that he isn't all there. He doesn't have he doesn't have sort of the the function to act as president of the United States. What what would your sort of opinion be on that? A bit controversial, but uh, sure. Well, you know, as we get older, it uh, often does start to fade off, and uh, I, I have evidence from my daughters that at age sixty, I'm I'm there already. But uh, we, 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 we saw a bit of that during the uh, run-up election for uh, Joe Biden. What we can say is, is President Trump's effort to paint him as dithering and, uh, and uh, out of touch did not work in the debates. The, uh, Joe Biden demonstrated himself to be there and be competent. Um, I don't know what the future brings as, as uh time advances and he gets older, but I, I think it would be unwise to uh, count him out at this point. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, if we could move on to a little bit of European and, and British politics, I know we could go on talking about uh, the American election and American politics uh, all day, but uh, that might might annoy some of the UK listeners who... who, uh, well, who, would, who I, would... I do... Sorry, go ahead. I do. I do want to insert Mark because if I were a UK listener, I'd be asking about the uh, allegations of uh, fraud and where where that's going to head. Hopefully, by the time they hear this in a week, the uh, U.S. Electoral College will have voted and put mm-hmm. yet another nail in the coffin. But just at least from National Review, yeah, we could absolutely talk about that fraud. That's that's interesting. I I just, I just thought you you might want to touch mm-hmm. on it because. Because National Review is in an interesting position to often support policies that would be associated with the president, although um, uh, often questioning how the president goes about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, after this election, our writers have spent a great deal of time monitoring these allegations of fraud. And, you know, I'm sure there's been situations that have merited review, but nothing's risen to be worthy of an actual case and individual states and courts if it rejected the president's efforts so far as lack of substance. And NR has been uh, very clear in reproving the president as far as his uh, disgraceful endgame, as the editorial put it. And just this whole idea of promoting a stolen election without cause and then pressing it and working to bypass the election system any way he can is just... Um, it, as our editors put it, disgraceful. And that that's a firm opinion of National Review and its writers. And that, I mean, that seems eminently correct. And would you, would, would you go as far as to say that this uh, sort of situation of the allegations of fraud by many on the, on the right leading to polls where as many as, many as uh, over half of Republicans uh, believe that there was some sort of fraud within the uh, election. Would you say that that is evidence of what you said earlier, that the for-profit model of many media institutions have corrupted the way we get news, the validity of that news, or or is that a bridge too far? Have we not, not reached that point yet? 
No, I'm sure that's uh, part of the formula. The thing that we got to remind ourselves, Mark, is that as long as there's been man, the conflict and uh, uh, dishonesty in these matters uh, has reigned. So you can go back to to elections in the 1700s and 1800s in the United States and, and see noise like this. We just we just do it better and faster, faster now. But uh, for people listening to this, as crazy as it is, in my opinion, that there are so many people who are supporters of the president willing to entertain these ideas that there was significant and um, consequential fraud. We saw very similar things four years ago from supporters from uh, the uh, Democrats and and from for Hillary Clinton. So. These aren't new ideas, but but it's not pleasant to watch, and it's really unhelpful to the nation and to those people who supported the president to to watch this. Yeah, absolutely, and that that's an interesting point as well because that might be uh, something that people who are much more liberal and left wing in in, uh, in university might not have. Uh, paid as much attention to that there was a conceited and uh, concerned effort on the left to call uh, Trump's Trump's election uh, illegitimate and they might not have had their candidate shouting and tweeting the way that President Trump is but there there was an effort on the left that you can draw parallels to this time uh, on the right for sure and yeah not not my president if you wanted to buy the t-shirts I I'm sure they're still out there for uh, the 2016 election absolutely you could you could uh you could hold that and and frame that and have that be your your trophy from the 2016 election. So if we could uh, could get onto a little bit of a uh, little bit of Brexit talk and mm. uh, and the and keep it a little bit uh, broader, uh, especially from a conservative perspective, it might be interesting to to hear. Should the UK have left the EU? Well, it has long been a National Review editorial policy that Brexit was the right move. And uh, we've actually written a great deal about Brexit over over the years. I, I think that adheres to the United States and the UK's close relationship. Uh, a lot of our writers are actually expats f- from the UK, attended uh, fine, fine universities in, in uh, England. Um, you know, ultimately, I think we see this as an example of adherence to principles of smaller, closer, and accountable government, and that's that's very much an American concept, uh, at least to the political right. And looking from afar, it, that's what I think people saw across the pond, as it were, and encouraged the UK to. Uh, to Brexit. I should tell you, Mark, and, and your your friends, that probably the average American is spending more time thinking about Megxit than, than Brexit. That's just, that, 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 that's the sort of thing that catches our attention over here. Yes, and that's been very evident in living in the UK uh, versus versus America. We we had 
when, when that Brexit vote happened, it was it was a headline for sure, but it wasn't nearly as significant for us as the election of Donald Trump or everything he's done since uh, for people in Europe and the UK. There's definitely more more scrutiny of of our politics, American politics, on the uh, other side of the pond than it is the other way around. But it but, is interesting from an American's perspective to to think about Brexit just because of how sort of ingrained federalism and separation of powers and that sort of closeness of government is in our systems. And would you say that the opinion of National Review and your opinion on Brexit comes from comes from that perspective more than it does from the uh there was an election, essentially, a, a referendum for the UK to leave the EU, and that's essentially wh why they are now, based off of that, not the principles that we were talking about. So which one would you say it, it is more, from, the, from your perspective uh, and National Review's perspective, respecting that referendum or based on the principles of federalism and separation of powers? Yeah, I, I would think most of the uh, writers and editors would say that this is a, a matter of principles that that the uh, but that the people rose up and uh, asserted uh, through the ballot box, which is respectable. You know, Mark, you just made a really interesting uh, parallel to the United States federal federal system of states. Uh, you know, that's a concept that was born out of the U.S. founding fathers when they gave consideration to government structures throughout history because remember this idea of uh, government without monarchy was a, a novelty at that time revolutionary idea revolutionary principles from the enlightenment uh, so so american founding fathers looked and uh, specifically considered ancient greece and rome and such as far as uh, ways that they had organized themselves. And they, they came to the conclusion, as I understand it here, that there are real challenges when uh, states become too large and too remote uh, from, from the, uh, the people on the ground, if you will. So the federal system was created as an effective way to harness the advantages of a nation national defense and, and, and the like, but the freedoms and energies that are associated with individual communities and states. And I, I think those concepts have made something very uh, strong, uh, energetic, and, and positive uh, for the United States and for the world. And when you look at my understanding of the EU, that's not the same Thing, that that's actually a move in the other direction as opposed to this federation of states that the uh, American founding considered. Yeah, and it, it certainly doesn't seem like uh, a natural community, like you could even argue America was uh, from its founding and its expansion westward, that uh, states in, in the EU have come because of economic uh, incentives and uh even from a from a more structural point of view, creating a, a trading block that is European, uh, rather than sort of coming out of a an idea of nationhood community community, and and how far would you say that that difference in how the EU has come together versus the the US, how far has that difference contributed to the sort of ideas behind Brexit and then the moves of countries like uh, the Netherlands, where, where I lived uh, for a little while there, 
there are movements there on their political right to uh, have an exit. There's certainly talk of, of uh, some Southern European com countries leaving the EU, and it doesn't seem like that those sort of ideas and that talk is going to go away anytime soon. No, and it's unfortunate because, of course, this is, this is a case where the worst of the right, uh, and there's worsts of the left, as we know, as we look throughout time and history and across the globe, but the worst of the right can be where some of these important principles of government and, um, uh, I don't know, a pr productive structure can get linked with ideas of, well, those are different people, different races, and, and uh, a lot of negative thoughts in that regard. And when you just jam people together mercilessly and say, no, no, you're all the same, or you all have the same opinions, you're going to, people are going to react in uh, negative ways. And sometimes it's uh, not going to be, like, I guess I'll say a proper, appropriate thought. But, it, but it's a ramification, I think, of what uh, the EU experiment was from, from the outside. So you, you mentioned the words EU experiment, and a lot of the time, a lot, uh, a lot of the time American politicians will call American democracy an experiment. And uh, so a little bit of an interesting parallel there. Would you say that in the EU, the experiment ha has failed and the EU as uh, an institution should be rethought, restructured, taken down, or, or has it been uh, more beneficial than harmful, or would it be more harmful than beneficial to take it apart? Well, I should just step back and say, you know, one of the key tenets of uh, Buckley's American conservatism were, were free markets, free trade, and the, uh, the, the power and advancement that that provides. So in that sense, obviously, there's been some great positive things by the EU coming together. But but I, I, th I think they probably exceeded that. And I think our average writer would say that the experiment has failed and is harmful, uh, negative, deleterious to some, and that it's uh, either needs to go away or to be totally reimagined. Re and with people exiting, like the UK and like you mentioned, Netherlands, I. I think that provides uh, pressures and impetus. We'll we'll see what you folks do over there. Yeah, especially I, I I'm kind of thinking from the perspective of a UK listener right now. I I doubt many would have been exposed to that kind of uh, critique of the EU, especially from from that American perspective of a history of of federalism and uh, just our veneration for those principles. Uh, in a structural sense, uh, but we can we can move on to um, to something a little bit more a little bit more ab abstract maybe or grand scheme, and that uh, is a question that I wanted to put to you just about the media's role in in democracy, and and then specifically how you see National Review fit within that role. Hey, well, yes, we. Uh you had, you had sent me a note beforehand, Mark, that talked about is the media c complicit in facilitating this polarity, uh, and there's just no, no, no question about that, and and I do think it presents huge challenges. Um, 
you know, one of our American presidents, second president, John Adams, had a line about if our our constitution's only made for a moral and religious people and it's wholly inadequate for to govern anybody else. At our core, people people have problems of, and government structures are best conceived in order to um, recognize that and to channel that in as positive and, and effective way as it can, protecting the rights of minorities. And this then then bleeds over to, to the media, which of course uh, becomes a, uh, what's well, business. So we've, we've got that impulse and it becomes a magnifier of the voices that it wants to hear. So there's, there's challenges that way. When we talked last, I, I, I think you expressed some um, pessimism here, Mark. And it, it, I, was, I was hard put to totally dissuade you. Um, you know, I think uh, our, our, our job is to use the only weapons we have, which are rational and civil discourse and uh, uh, work, work our angle as best we can. And that's, that's where National Review is. You, you may be familiar with the quote, but when uh, Buckley founded his write-up uh, included this, that National Review would stand athwart history and yell, stop. The idea of, of uh, this inexorable trend towards statism and, um, and uh, this, this uh, a liberal mindset, if you will, there's going to, there has to be voices that say, no, now wait a second. And yeah, that, absolutely, and that, that's our job. That seems like the right response to, to what you said. My my pessimism about, of about sort of the the media and democracy. It seems you have the uh, so, some some tools at your fingertips to and 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 you'll try and do your best to, to push media in the right direction. We're uh, called on to do our best, and uh, you know it's a. Uh, if, if, if somebody wanted to dig into the history, by the way, of National Review, I think, I think some things that they would find interesting. Buckley was just a fascinating man and uh, a prolific writer, opinion and fiction, interestingly, speaker, debater, advisor to presidents, including like uh, Ronald Reagan. He also, by the way, had a, a TV program for 33 years called Firing Line. And if uh, some of your folks want to go back and listen to just some really fascinating a uh, thoughtful debate. He'd bring on people he disagreed with and uh, take shots at uh, If you're just going to watch one, I'd, I'd watch the uh, one with him with uh, Muhammad Ali, the boxer, for example. Just, just, I will, just uh, I'll definitely put a link in the in the podcast description. Uh, if, you, if you send that to me after the recording, I'll make sure. That sounds very interesting. But one of his missions was is to bring together this uh, inchoate American conservatism which ultimately they kind of came upon this term of knowledge of fusionism, which where we had traditional conservatives, normally kind of a Burkean, Russell Kirkian, um, uh, oftentimes people of faith mindset of conservatism, uh, economic uh, conservatism, the idea of uh, the, idea, the, the libertarian ideas of people like Hayek, and then 
overriding at the time was this uh, shared resistance to the international communist movement, which was um, chilling in a lot of ways, freedom and, and even militarily. So, so his mission was to bring together this group. And if you, if you kind of wanted to look at maybe what that set of ideas was, uh, they wrote it up in something they called the Sharon Statement. It's named after uh, Sharon, Connecticut, where uh, Buckley's home was. But it, it spells out kind of some core principles that um, the American conservative movement would adhere to and that are even today still very solid guideposts for national reviews, editors and writers. That brings up another another very interesting question from and this might might be especially interesting to the UK listenership on uh, to hear from from an American conservative. What does uh, conservatism look like today uh, from your perspective, the perspective of National Review, both in an American sense and in uh, an international traditional sense? What does the modern conservative look like? Well, I'm not a philosopher, uh, Mark. I I, I want to be in this, but I think it starts with uh, inter- individual freedom. Um, and it, it, again, this this kind of goes back to the uh, the Sharon the Sharon statement, political freedom freedom, which is often de- well, uh, the Sharon statement says impossible without economic freedom, limited government, uh, the idea that government is described by not what it's supposed to do but what it can't do or shouldn't do, allowing people and and organizations. To, uh, to create the real sense of, of, of community. So that'd be limited government, strict interpretation of our U.S. Constitution. We're, we're free marketeers. Uh, the, the power engine of uh, creativity and wealth and not wealth for it, individuals, but wealth as a, as a society and even as a world. I mean, to some degree, although we don't want to think this way because there are so many challenges, including obviously the pandemic, we're living in a time that is unheard of in the history of man as far as people out of poverty, um, in general, the freedoms and uh, lifestyles that we can we can experience across, across the globe. And, and, and I think a lot of what has made that happen is uh, the, the underlying engine of, of free markets and the concepts of uh, legal structure and law from the, uh, the, the great Anglo-British uh, heritage that the United States enjoys. Um, that those, those are the, uh, the uh, tablets, if you will, that... Uh, National Review and Buckley attempted to keep, and uh, I, I think they're enduring and important for people to understand and and live by. Yeah, absolutely, and this will certainly be uh, uh, a new perspective for for a lot of people to hear and and to consider. And I'd, I'd <laughs> I wouldn't hesitate to say a controversial one, which I'm perfectly perfectly and it's better to have uh, something that is is confronting when you're at university there's 
all too often, I think, uh, an attempt, and this might be more American than it is than it is English, an attempt now at university to make everybody feel feel safe mm. and feel sort of secure about their their place in the world. Uh, where where university to me seems like the place that you go to be challenged, and uh, I'm I'm glad that we're able to do do a little part here, and 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 uh, and that's what I try and do with this podcast as well. Uh, try and put out interesting opinions, conversations with uh, with interesting people that others might not agree with, and uh, I think I think that we're 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 doing an effective job here. Well, good, Mark. I- I would enjoy uh, conversing with any of your friends. I, I mean, I'm not trying to make a debate society here, but uh, just if if they if they had uh, thoughts or feedback, uh, I'm happy to entertain that. You could pipe them my way. That sounds great. And I have a, I have one last question that I'd that I'd like to end on here, and that is uh, drawing a parallel between UK and American media, and touching back on that theme of the for-profit model. Uh, and watching the election on election night with my housemates, uh, there was a certain criticism of the way America does its news and TV coverage, that everything is intense. There's that intense election music and it's showmanship and it's, it's uh, voyeuristic almost in, in, in how in your face and like showmanship our our media tends to be whereas if you were to watch the bbc and a report that they do uh there's a certain quality of impartiality to it and there's this sort of common sense of this is the bbc this is what we do here we deliver the news we don't we don't try and have any political opinion in how we do it and for that they receive state funding would you end touching also on the uh, values that you as a conservative and National Review as a conservative organization hold dear, would it be possible, uh, acceptable to introduce that kind of a model for American media or would that just sort of be dead on arrival that maybe it works there but it wouldn't work in the States and that it's a sort of slippery slope giving, giving public funding to media organizations? Yeah, I, I, I think we would be um, uniformly against that. That being said, Mark, you're, you're, you're probably aware uh, there is public broadcasting and it's part of the, the mix in the American uh, tapestry of media. And, and, you know, the PBS, that's a public broadcasting system, news is, is, is uh, historically very good to watch. The part I do chuckle about when you are watching TV and it is just over the top, but the thing we have to remember is, is uh, that is that is a declining media outlet. Uh, your generation doesn't watch it nearly as much. You guys are just a bunch of uh, of uh, political junkies and couldn't couldn't resist. But that I I think as time goes by, the the real play is not in broadcast TV, but in, in, in other avenues, which can have similar problems as we know, but uh, I, I, I don't think the answer is a, is a new TV channel. That, that almost makes me giggle, actually. I said something similar to my housemates, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to show them this part of the, uh, this part of the podcast <laughs> and say, hey, I'm, I'm not alone in thinking this, all right? 
Get off my back. <laughs> so, so if you ever want to have fun, and maybe now it's not the tie, Mark, but I, I, I just love to uh, someday def- defend the uh, American Electoral College to to your uh, team and, and the uh, what what might might sound uh, controversial. So, you will you will definitely catch some flack for that. But uh, uh, there's an opportunity actually to 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 do an event like that that uh, that we can we can sort of talk about uh, off podcast, but I'm sure 